Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into today's episode of the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name's Christian Allen, and I'm here with my co host, Rod the Pod Zabriskie. Rod, what's up, man? Hey, I'm doing great. How are you doing? I couldn't be better, Rod. The sun's shining bright. I've got my it. golf sucks hat on. <laughs> I am ready to roll. Yes, I hope I don't too. offend anybody. Okay, so I should just say, if you can't see it, it's a Travis Matthew hat, which is a golf brand. And so yeah. I think it's kind of like a play on that. Yeah, it's a golf hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. the one you it's the one you keep in your cart when you when you can't hit anything and then you just flip <laughs> it back on. When you're... <laughs> exactly. So that's um it's a little too cold to go golfing for my taste right now. But mm-hmm. uh anyway, I'm I'm feeling good, Rod. Thanks for asking. So yeah, yeah. a couple of announcements before we hit into today's episode topic. I just want to remind everybody that we have the Facebook. Uh, the Facebook group, it's investment strategies for high income earners. Now, here's what we're going to do. We are going to send out an invitation from Facebook to basically everybody in our database. So if you're in our database, you should over the next week or so be getting an invitation to come into the, um, to the Facebook group. And if you're not in our database, there's lots of ways that you can do it. You can go in, uh, go onto the website. You can check out the high income money hacks, the, you can do the investor quiz. The investor quiz is kind of cool because it gives access to the member area, which will have curated content that's specific to the person based on the way that they answered the questions in the investor quiz. Yep. So anyway, there's lots of ways to get there. But Facebook, the Facebook group, we're hoping that we can get a lot of people to join and be part of the community um, and draw upon all the you know great experience that we have from listeners. And then as a Another reminder, every Tuesday afternoon, we're doing our Facebook Lives. So we're yep. we're consistent. We're doing it. Every week, right now, we're doing it at 5 Eastern time. And uh, so, so, yeah, you can catch us there. Yesterday, it was, what did we do yesterday, Rod? We talked about Roth conversions, yes, right? Yes, we did. Okay. All right. So that said, Rod, let's talk about what we're going to hit on today. We are going to talk about some little-known high-income tax strategies. So these are kind of like niche tax strategies that come into play in certain situations and could be really, really valuable, really high impact. They are specifically for high income earners, but again, they, they have their specific place. And so we're not saying, Hey, everybody should necessarily use either of these things that we're going to talk about. Mm -hmm. But if you're in, if you are in that right kind of demographic area, then it's certainly something to consider. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so here's what we're going to cover, and and really, Rod's going to teach us today. So Rod's the one that does all of the all of the work that requires the nerdy like real stuff. brain power. <laughs> yeah, Rod takes care of all that stuff. No, yeah, the nerdy stuff. He gets into the details. Um, and to be totally honest, Rod, I haven't taught people about the restricted property trust in probably like seven years. Okay. So so I think you're going to be like a little more polished on how to do. Okay. The two things we're going to talk about, we're talking about a concept called restricted property trust, which will have no meaning to anybody at this point. But again, Rod's going to break we'll it down there. and teach us about it. And then the second one, which might be a little bit more familiar is captive insurance companies. Uh, we're going to talk about those. And if you followed the captive world at all, you know that it's a little bit more of an aggressive strategy. Now, 
our belief is that it absolutely has its place for the right situation, the right person, if it's done the right way. Mm -hmm. So again, assuming that you fit the criteria and that we're doing it with reputable people who, who have a hit track record of doing it the right way, it's totally legitimate. Um, yep. Okay. So with that said, Rod, let's start with the restricted property trust. And I'm going to kind of let you take it the direction you want to take it. Okay. Well, first of all, the probably the best place to start is just to talk about what the benefits are for the restricted property trust. And the first one is that it's a way you can get tax deductions on a portion of premiums going into life insurance. I'm off, mm -hmm. I'm often asked that business owners want deductions from everywhere. Anytime from they're, everywhere. they're moving money into anything. So I'll frequently get that question. Hey, Rod, as I'm setting up my investment optimizer or whatever, can I How deduct I these premiums? Tax deductible. And usually the answer is no, because mm -hmm. of the of just the whole tax benefits we talk about, right? We put it in after tax so that we can get everything back out tax-free. If you take the deduction on the front end, then you reverse that and everything else coming out is, is all of a sudden taxable. So we don't want that. Nobody and, want and that. so far nobody has taken me up on that. Uh <laughs> So, but this is a way where, uh, again, for business in, in a business setting for business owners, uh, we can actually set up where a portion of the premiums are deductible. We'll get into the details on it, but, um, it's, yeah, it so it deal. is, it is one of the very few situations where life insurance premiums can be tax deductible and it makes sense to be tax deductible. So That'll you can cool. break us into that a little bit more. Um, but that is a big benefit, Rod. Uh, and yeah. really it's one of if not the primary purpose, not purpose, benefit that people, it's the reason that people use it. Yeah, for, the most for sure. There's yeah. some other, there's a bunch of other ancillary benefits that can be really cool. But normally when somebody does this, they are first and foremost looking for that tax benefit. Yep, absolutely. So it's great for uh, the owner, him or herself, doing it on themselves, uh, but then also for an employee benefit. Hmm, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. It's a huge benefit to, I think about employee benefits, Rod, and they're kind of like an underutilized strategy. So I think it's sure. a, that's an important one to bring up. Yeah. Ultimately, it's going to turn into a LERP, life insurance retirement plan, uh, because as we know that the income that comes off of those is income tax-free, which is a big deal. Um, but one of the really cool things with this is that it's fully discriminatory. Yes, I'm touting the benefit mm. of discriminatory because... <laughs> okay, let's be clear what kind of discrimination we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, so because you're not subject to ERISA rules. ERISA rules are subject, you know, that you, you have when you have 401k or defined benefit plan. And and they, they tell you if you're going to do it at all, you have to offer it to certain Everybody. classes of, of employees, right? In this case, there are no such rules. You could do it only on yourself if you wanted to, if you're the business owner, even if you have five employees or 500 employees, you could just do it on yourself. Uh, or you can include, uh, you know, if you wanted to have it as a golden handcuffs type of thing for your key employees, where they're building up this asset, you're helping them build this asset for their future retirement income. That can be, you pick and choose. You don't, you're not subject to those kind of class rules. Hmm. It sounds like an interesting, uh, like an interesting concept that people can get value from Rod. But I think the question, at least the question that's coming to my mind is mm -hmm. like, who can use it? Where does it make sense? Okay, right? good. Yeah. So first of all, again, it's business owners who want a deduction, who are, uh, want to build for retirement 
and or help employees do it. It's a great alternative to deferred compensation plans. We don't want to get too deep in the weeds on that, but essentially there are more um, more favorable tax benefits to with this than with a deferred comp plan to uh, to the business. Well, on the business side, it's the same either way. You get the 100% deduction, but to the employee in a deferred comp plan, they, they're taxed on that income. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's it's built so that they're only partially taxed. And again, we'll get into those details, but but it can be a real good alternate for that. Um, and it works in any business structure. So as long as you're not a sole proprietor, like running solo, um, C-Corp, S-Corp, partnership, any of those kinds of, of business structures it works for. Hmm, that's interesting. So it, it actually has more. Okay, Rod. Like I said, a restricted property trust is kind of a niche concept, but it actually sounds like, and I'm kind of learning this, relearning this as we go, uh, but it kind of sounds like it might actually have more application than what I probably, what I initially thought. So I'm interested to kind of get a better feel because again, like in my mind, I, I was thinking like it almost never fit. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. not true. Um, I just know that there's like a select grouping of people. So maybe maybe it would be helpful to talk about like examples of situations, like a business situation where someone could make sense of doing it. Sure. We, well, and, and probably one of the reasons that you feel that way is because most of the time when we're talking with business owners about setting up a life insurance policy, it's because they want to put money in. They're going to go out and invest with later, right? The investment optimizer for sure. type of thing. Yep. And this is not that. This is right. money you're setting aside, and at least for a period of time, uh, you're you're not going to access it. So we talk about in the investment optimizer that the money going into the policy isn't the investment. Yeah. In this, the money going in is the investment, right? We're talking yeah. about the tax benefit and the return in the policy. Right. That's what's giving me my my value. Not just it's not that we're setting it there and then we're taking it and investing elsewhere. Yeah, and the creators of the Restricted Property Trust will often talk about how it. they'll compare it to a, uh, the, you can actually get a better return than you could in a, an 8% return in, in a you know, typical kind of investment portfolio. Yeah. So again, we're, we're not talking about like the same kind of returns as a lot of people are getting in their real estate and, and the businesses, of course. Um, but when you combine the kind of return we can get in the insurance policy with the tax deduction that pushes it to a place where again, then it becomes better than that 8% taxable type place. Well, and if you think about it, Rod, it's not an aggressive play. It's actually very conservative. So to say like, okay, if it's not the money that I want to go out and get a 20% return uh, investing in real estate with, Mm -hmm. but for a conservative return to get, you know, an eight plus percent rate of return, tax equivalent rate of return or better, like that's pretty darn good with, with yeah. safe money. Cause because it's going into a whole life policy, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Like it's literally at zero risk of loss mm-hmm. and the return is while not completely guaranteed. We, we talk all the time about the consistency of dividends. Like it's pretty darn close. Yeah. Well, and, and I would also say that that comparison I talked about with the 8% is based on where interest rates have been, where they've mm, been really low and therefore point. the dividend has been really low. Moving so forward. I actually remember, sorry to, to talk over you, but You're good. I remember when the creator, Ken, Ken? Yeah, Crab. His name Ken? Ken Crab, mm-hmm. that's his name. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember when Ken start, had to like, made some adjustments when the dividends went down, because when we originally showed it, dividends were a little bit higher 
and it was showing something like closer to a 10, 11% return. Well, based on what's happening with interest rates, that's going to be the same flow we're going to see here, right? Mm -hmm. He, we went because dividend rates went down to, you know, where you were getting, you know, 5.75 in total, as an example, you know, now that we're going to see those start rising, this will probably be more equivalent to those 10, 12% returns. Again, a lot of it will be interest rate driven, but it could be, it could be, uh, that's just a point that I think is important to remember. Absolutely. Um, okay, Rod, let's talk, let's get into like the, how it works part of it. Yeah. So first thing we're going to do is we're going to set up a, I call it moderately optimized whole life policy. <laughs> I like that. I think you're going to have to give a little more juice around <laughs> moderate. What is it? We always talk about fully optimized maximum, maximum all yeah, those things, yeah. but here you're talking about, you're going to purposefully not fully maximize it, Rod. You better explain yourself. Yeah, we'll talk about why. Okay, but first let's give some context because okay. when we talk about maximum or optimally uh, structured policies, we're generally talking about base of 20 to 25% and then the other 75 to 80% is overfunded, right? Yeah. We're putting a lot more money in the policy than we have to for the sake of like that core base insurance policy. In this case, uh, we're actually going basically 70% base and 30% overfunded. And people might Holy think, smokes. whoa. You're that flipping just everything that we've been teaching people totally <laughs> on there. Okay, so here's the deal, though. For this strategy, and, and I think this is important. Mm -hmm. For this strategy, it actually is fully optimized. It's yeah. just the optimization needs to be done differently. But I'll let you talk about why. Yeah, because it's a balance between if, if, we, if we've, insisted on having such a low base like we normally do for like investment optimizer and capital avalanche then the tax there wouldn't be much of a tax deduction there it's actually right. we're actually able to capture um, as much of a cap tax deduction as we are because of the structure of it so it's it's balancing those two it's still overfunded the IR, irr on it may not be five percent but it might be four percent right based on where interest rates have been uh so Balancing that against the deduction that you get on the front end with the return that we're able to produce com combined, that puts it at that optimal level. Okay, Rod, I have a maybe a difficult question for you. I genuinely don't know the answer. Why is it okay. called a restricted property trust? Ah, good question. Yes. So maybe the, you're going to get into that. You, oh, we can, will. You can prefer that and if that's you actually want. the next. No, that's the next step because we oh, set up okay. the policy. Perfect. And the next thing is we're going to set up this trust. And it's called a restricted property trust because there are, in the tax code, there are ways that we can create deductions. There are correct ways to set them up. If you don't set them up correctly, you've seen uh, ways that people have tried to be creative in, mm, in creating years. deductions for life money going to life insurance. 419, oh, that was a big one that people had. Yeah, also, and, welfare, those were welfare benefit plans that just got used and abused and then got kicked to the curb by the IRS. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. And, and this you, isn't that. It is not. Because those weren't done in the right way, they had to. They even had to unravel the ones that had been set up, right? It was no, there was no grandfathering. When it was discovered what was happening, they, they cracked yeah. down and, and had to unravel it. Well, in this case, uh, what they've done is they're setting up the, the money going into the policies um, and the policies themselves, the, the trust asset basically has to carry with it what's called substantial risk of forfeiture. Mm. What that means is people love this, by the way, when we, when we used to teach this concept, they love this. this yeah. Is, yeah. 
the good stuff. Well, think of it. So in this way, it is kind of like a qualified plan. In other words, if I have an IRA, it has to be held with a, in, at a custodian account, right? If I take physical possession of it, well, let's use precious metals as an example. Some people may not know you can have precious metals like physical gold and silver in an IRA, mm-hmm. but don't put mm-hmm. that in your in your safe at home, because <laughs> if you have if you have a possession of it, then it no longer qualifies as an IRA. Well, this is a similar concept. It, it So now the policy exists inside of this trust. Uh, and again, I'll talk about what how it gets that substantial risk of forfeiture, but that's a key piece. If that doesn't exist, then you are basically considered as possessing the policy and therefore you don't qualify for the tax deduction. So, but when they say, when we say substantial risk of forfeiture, it's literally the whole amount, right? We're not yeah. saying, it's not like uh, a potential tax penalty type thing. It's like, there has to be a substantial risk of actually forfeiting the money if yep. certain guidelines aren't met. But if yep. they are, then we're good. So we'll, we'll good. get into that. Yeah. And so those guidelines are, uh, number one, that it's funded in increments of five years. So someone could fund it. So again, let's just say 100000 a year for five years. They're, they're committing to that uh, up front. And what happens is if they get to a year and they can't fully fund that 100000 that's the that's the risk of forfeiture. In other words, uh, they've put it. Let's say they put in two hundred thousand. Year three, they can't do the hundred thousand. Then the asset goes away. It gets forfeited. To doesn't it go to like a charity? Yeah, charity. that's the way they set them up. With, they set with it up to go to the which is the trust. Yeah, to make it. That's what creates that risk of forfeiture. Okay, so there. This is obviously very different than what we talk about in the investment optimizer, where we're talking mm-hmm. about all of the fluid, the fluidity, the flexibility. Um, this is not that. Mm-hmm. So it's certainly a situation where when you make the commitment, you want to, you want to be certain that you're, you're totally comfortable doing it. Right. We've seen lots yeah. of people do this and be very successful and have no issues. Right. Mm-hmm. So, but if you were, you gave that example, you better have the $500,000 and know exactly where it's at and or coming from to mm-hmm. be ready to fund it. Cause if yep. not, like you say, that that money's going to a charity. Um, so anyway, I just think that's a that's kind of the that's kind of the crux or the big challenge, yeah. right? It's what it's what holds people back from doing it. Uh, but it's the interesting thing. It's is it's also what provides or allows for the tax benefit to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting kind of conundrum. But again, if you're in a stable position where you have the money it shouldn't be an issue. It isn't an issue. Yeah. And it's not unlike some of the other rules, like around defined benefit plans, for example, where you, where you have to plan on contributing a certain amount, or even like when you, if you want to take money out on a 72 T and, and there's, yeah. you have to be set on the schedule of how you're going to take that money out in order to be able to take it without the penalty. Similar idea. Yeah. It's a good point. Okay. All right. So now let's talk about the, how that, how that's deducted. So I put the hundred thousand in, in the first year that is hundred percent deductible to the business. Okay. And it's partially deductible to the employee, usually right around 70%. Okay. So if you're the business owner and the, so th- would that be like both sides same. Be the owner and the employee? Yes. Yes. So, and, if it's and, that, and this is the key because sometimes I'll hear about strategies where they say, Oh, it's hundred percent deductible to the business but it's a hundred percent deduct 
non-deductible, so it's 100% taxable to the employee. Well, if you're the owner and you get the tax deduction to the business, that's, that's all fine and dandy. But then when you go file <laughs> your taxes, all of a sudden it's taxable to you as the employee. So yeah, or okay. you know, the recipient of the, of the benefit. So, but in this case, it's, it's both, it's hundred percent deductible to the business, to the business. and roughly 70% deductible to the employee. Okay. Slash okay. Business yep, that's owner. important. Yep. Okay. So, uh, so we talked about that whole idea of five-year increments. So you, mm-hmm. you choose up front, Hey, I'm going to fund this for five years or, or, and at the end of the five, you could say, no, I want to keep going. Let's do another five years. But you, but you, if you do additional contributions, you're always adding another five-year segment. Yep. They're not nice. Like some of these other things where it's like, okay, you get past the first five and then it becomes more fluid or more flexible. They just, it's just the same five years. Yeah. That's your, you, you just have to know your funding in five-year blocks. Yep. So, uh, but then once you get past what, what I'll call the trust period. So whether if it, if it was mm-hmm. five years or if it was 10, let's just say 10, cause the example I'm going to show here later, uh, is using 10 years. Okay. Then let's, if we get to year 11 and then at that point, then we can distribute the policy from the trust. We have uh, we've fulfilled our obligation in terms of that substantial risk of forfeiture. Uh, we're we're now at a place where we can take possession of the asset. Um, when we do that, then basically the remainder of the tax that the the stuff that was deducted on the front end basically now becomes taxable in, in as as I'm distributing the asset. But now because the asset because it has cash value, we're just going to take that out of the cash value to pay that tax. So you don't, it's, you don't feel you're not coming out of pocket to pay that additional tax later when, when we distribute it from the, from the trust, it's, it's being covered from the, the cash value itself. Hmm. Okay. Which the, and the benefit for that is now it puts it back in, in the, the territory where we're familiar in that as I take, the income distributions, it's all tax-free when I pass away conversion that's happening. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a good way to think of it. Uh, And then ultimately when I pass away that in that also pays out income tax-free to my beneficiaries. Okay. So at the end of the day, the idea is genuinely to create a tax-free income stream. Mm -hmm. Yep. It's just an, a really kind of interesting, interestingly navigated way to get there, right? Yeah. And, and when I said that, um, like distributing in year 11 or whatever, you wouldn't have to distribute it then. So for example, we're getting the deduction when our income is high, highest, right? And in our, in our, we're working hard. We're creating really cool things with our business. We want that deduction. We get that deduction. Um once I get past the trust period at any point, I could then distribute it, but I don't have to distribute it right away. If I'm still in that mode where I'm a high income, but I don't want to commit to another five years or whatever. So I'm, I'm kind of cutting it off. I just leave it in the trust for as long as I want to leave it there. And then I choose when I distribute it. Okay. So Rod, what are the options after you've kind of created that conversion? Let's say I'm down the road and I'm able to like, could I start fluidly using it to invest at later after? Absolutely. Okay. Yep. So as soon as it could... comes out, it's completely liquid and available to you and you can use it for really anything you want. Mm, okay. Yep. So that is, that is interesting, right? So you could use it almost as like a longer term investment optimizer building strategy or yeah. again, retirement income, however you want to play it. But 
but while there's not a lot of flexibility on the early stages in those five-year blocks, mm-hmm. it sounds like there's a quite a bit of flexibility as we get further into it. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Yep. Cool. I like it. Okay. Uh, so hopefully that's good, but, but just a few kind of miscellaneous thoughts uh, to end our conversation around restricted property trust. Uh, the first one is that it's generally for business owners with the take home of 500,000 or more just as a general rule. Um, and part of that is because it has a minimum of a $50,000 per year contribution yeah, for, for the five years. That's right. Okay. So do we, is there any other reason that Ken gave us why the, why it should be that like the higher income, that number, is there anything magical about that? Or is he really just saying like, this is kind of based on my experience where we've set that guideline? Yes. Yes. Based on his experience in, uh, just being careful with suitability and, and that kind of thing, deciding on, you know, or, or at least seeing that that's, that's just a general rule. Okay. So it's not good enough to have a high revenue company where you bring a little bit of cash out of it. This is genuinely for if you're taking, bringing in, taking home um, around half a million dollars or more of income. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, on the other hand, there's not really a, a limit on how much you, you can set it up to be contributing per year for those five years. Um, I mean, it has to be reasonable based on your income that, that that's going to be kind of the, the rule, so to speak on, on the max, but you know, he's given examples of, you know, people making $10 million a year and contributing a million of it, you know, to, into something like this. So it's, um, anyway, there's not going to be an upper limit necessarily. Okay. Uh, it gets creditor protection, which is consistent among our conversations around life insurance. It gets the life insurance creditor protection, but it also has that trust creditor protection for that time while it's there as well. And then maybe the last thought is just if if you heard us talking about some of these other strategies that had to be unwound and all this kind of stuff, just, well, the, the thing that, that Ken has been very careful with is, um, setting it up with the kind of the IRS in uh, included in, in the conversation, so to speak, um, so that it could be number one vetted with them specifically. And then uh, he's also very proud to say that any audits that have come up that, in, that then included a review of the restricted property test, all of them came through with flying colors. There were no, no issues, no restrictions, no changes uh, mm-hmm. to it. So mm. um, it's, it's, it's pretty solid. Yeah. I think that is a good point, right? Um, sometimes, sometimes it's easy to lump in things just because they're lesser known. Uh, but this one, while it is lesser known and has a, a niche specific market, um, it's definitely rock solid. So something yep. to consider if you fit that criteria. Okay. Rod, why don't we, we're going to kind of switch gears and we're going to get into what we'll call part two Mm-hmm. of our little known high income tax strategies. And we're going to talk about captive insurance companies. So maybe the starting point, Rod, is what the heck is a captive? And then and then just at a high level, what is a captive? Yeah. And then let's jump into the benefits and how it works and where is it a good fit, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. A captive insurance company uh, was originally kind of created for really large corporations, uh, any of your you know top 500 size companies or whatever are going to have a captive, but it's also available to 
non top 500. Uh, and, and again, we'll get into some of those specifics, but essentially what you're doing is we all pay for insurance for liability insurance, uh, et cetera, right? Property, casualty, yep. all that kind of stuff on our cars, homes, businesses. And so there are specific things inside of our businesses that we do pay for in, uh, insurance for to cover those risks. But there are a lot of things that businesses don't pay for, either because it's just not worth it to try to identify all of the, the infinitesimally small things that could happen inside of a business and, and try to go get insurance like Lloyd's of London. Hey, I want to I want to cover all this stuff. Um, but also because it would just be unreasonable cost wise to do it. Okay. Yeah. So basically the idea here is to transfer. Well, you're basically saying I'm going to take on, I'm going to take on the risks, these different risks through this captive company. And again, the idea is to create, uh, basically your own mm -hmm. company that is, it is meant to insure against risks. Right. Yeah. These, these, ob I said, ob almost said obsolete, not obsolete, these more obscure risks that we maybe don't think about as frequently. That's part of what can be included uh, inside the captive it makes it kind of unique. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then what you're doing, so you might say, well, that doesn't that sound like just self-insuring. I'm just keeping a bunch of money sitting on the sidelines in case something happens. <laughs> well, no, because you're actually setting up your own insurance company and you're pooling your risk in with a bunch of other captive companies out there as well mm, so, that's a, so that is a huge huge thing to remember rod that's a big absolutely. one absolutely yep okay so then someone might say that that's interesting pooling mm -hmm. risks that kind of thing covering risks that i'm not paying for you know insurance in other ways um but then the the reason people do it is because it comes with a huge tax deduction yep and if we were to be like really honest rod again really honest most people, I think they are primarily motivated or their first motivation is those tax deductions. However, however, it's obviously critical in order to do it the right way mm -hmm. that I have the actual need that goes with it. So those other things, while it's kind of one of those things where the tax deduction feels like the, the biggest benefit early on, but if I actually mm -hmm. needed to use my uh, captive company for a variety of reasons, like we might find that there's as much value in the insurance component as there is the tax deduction. But I think if we're being really honest, most people start this process because they're looking for this, this massive tax deduction. Yeah. Well, and I'll give maybe a couple of real quick examples. Cause we, we have a, a couple of companies that we pay attention to in, in the captive world. And one puts out a, uh, from time to time, like a case study, Hey, this, this happened inside of this company. And, and we, you know, they ended up paying out a claim from their captive. Well, one of the big examples of that was actually COVID mm, when, yeah. when a lot of it, when most businesses were, were scrambling, were hurting, like, what are we going to do? How are we going to, you know, tide this over? And, and so the PPP loans had to come, you know, kind of be introduced and that kind of thing. Well, if for any company that had a captive, they were fine. Like they, a lot of these were actually kicking in even before PPP loans were even a thing where mm. they were kicking in benefits from their captive insurance companies to kind of float the company, so to speak, until they could get back on their feet. Yeah, that's interesting. And of course, the, you know, the, the companies that were doing well, right? Like mm -hmm. in that moment, the idea is to pool a risk so that, so that, 
and hope obviously that everyone's not do struggling at the same time. Um, but you know, it kind of depended on what type of company you were in the, in COVID and some people still, some companies did great. And some people sometimes the, or some companies really struggled, but just to know that you've got the pooled risk there, um, mm -hmm. I think it makes a big difference. And that's a really interesting story, Rod. I didn't realize that uh, captives were, you know, kind of kicking in, putting out money even before we saw, you know, action from the government. Right. Because it's there. It's it's like like you get in the car wreck and you call your insurance co company, right? In this case, COVID happens. Hey, we're shutting you down. Okay, let's call our, quote unquote, call our insurance company, which is this whole captive situation yeah super interesting so and then um you know that's that was obviously a, a thing on a, on a huge scale uh, i've also seen examples where it was just stuff like you know a contractor who had someone who defaulted on a contract and they were kind of left holding the bill and so they were able to get fall back on their captive insurance company to to cover that claim so to speak yeah that makes sense okay, okay. So the next step, Rod, Okay, um, when it makes sense. Well, let's, let's actually talk about one other benefit that I mm -hmm. hadn't hit on yet. And that is that it also can be really good in conjunction with other financial strategies, other uh, tax-oriented strategies. And we'll get into some examples here in a minute, but, um, but I think that's important as well. That is important, Rod, because um, we have used it in conjunction with some other financial strategies and by doing it produced really significant tax benefits that we'll yeah. talk through yeah. at, the, at the end of our um, Absolutely. episode here. Okay, so why don't we jump into where it makes sense to use? Like when is it a good fit? Yeah, so in, in the case of a business that's producing take home of a million or more, again, that kind of creates a minimum threshold, but I would say probably the majority of the companies that we've seen that use it uh, are producing net revenue of you know two to four million is, is generally kind of what we've seen. Um, and, and, and then kind of B would be for businesses that carry uncovered risk, which all businesses do. And, and by the way, just, just to be really clear, you keep your liability coverage with your regular insurance carrier, right? All of those, what we might call normal insurance coverages, you still keep with them. This is going to cover all the other stuff. And and actually, sorry, I have some examples. Um, yeah, talk. Of, that's interesting because I was thinking in my head, like I can't remember. It's been a while since I talked about this, but what are some of those examples? Yeah, so I talked about like breach of contract uh, was mm, a couple of them. Yeah. Business interruption came up with the uh, with COVID, um, but even like uh, you know the government make changes laws, and that can significantly change a business's ability to to generate revenue and whatnot. And so that, that kind of thing can be covered. Um, there can be uh, like defense cost reimbursement, um, what eminent is that? domain. If so, well, you're paying your attorneys. Oh, that kind of your captive okay, can you. can cover Thanks. that. Um, eminent domain. If if the government comes in and says, "Hey, we're we're going to take over your property," hmm. change change the zoning or whatever. Right? They they do stuff like this. Uh, then you you would have that coverage. Um, anyway, so those are just a few things, intellectual property type of stuff and all kinds of things, which again, you 
you could go out and get insurance for all of these things. Someone might be hearing this and saying, oh, well, I've, I know such and such person over there that, that buy that gets intellectual property insurance or whatever. Um, and they may want to keep it if that's truly like such a key piece to their business, like they are a, a performing artist or something like that. And the intellectual property is is like the lifeblood of what they do. Um, but for most of us, like you and I, we have our ebook, right? Or we have other content that we put out there. That's our intellectual property, but it's not the core of what, of our business. We're not going to go out and pay for intellectual property insurance somewhere else. But if we had a captive, we would we would include that as, as one of those. Mm, yeah, that's an interesting point. So it, it really is like a lot of the it's covering a lot of the things that traditional insurance just wouldn't and can't. Right. Yeah. Um, now, I think there's some of those things that it could, but I think a lot of it sounds like to me there's a you know, I don't even know if if you could go out and get insurance on all of those different things. Uh, yeah, you'd have to be contacting Lloyds of London and say, hey, here, I want you to custom yeah. build a plan for me. Reminds Sorry. me of, uh, do you remember Sam Bradford? Um, I remember the story. He was at Oklahoma and, and he was the quarterback at Oklahoma and he had insured his arm. And this might be like a thing that people do in the NFL all the time. I don't know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it just kind of reminded me of like this random. Anyway, so, so you can insure a lot of things. So maybe yep. I'm wrong on this, but... Generally, you know, most people don't have insurance against all of the kind of more obscure risks that could be there. And so the captive comes in as, you know, this additional benefit. And of course, you're getting that benefit while creating this massive tax deduction and, and being able to invest money in those kind of things. Yep. And then last thing for where's a good fit, it's best for businesses, again, that have stable income and track record of success. You wouldn't on a on a single good year. You you may not jump in immediately and and be ready to set it up. Okay, Rod, how does it work? And then let's do kind of like a maybe like a little case study to show you know what it would look like in real life. Yeah. So you set up an operating company, basically the, the captive, and we actually do link it with. They call it the fronting carrier. It's a more traditional life insurance or not life insurance, but insurance company that. Because you're not an insurance company, right? Like all of the underwriting and, and the setting up of the risks and the, uh, the carrying it out when, when claims are, are needing to be paid and all that kind of stuff. You're not going to want to have to set up all of that administrative function yourself. So you tie in with this, again, they call it a fronting carrier that does all of that for you and the other captives that you're pulled in with. Okay. So when you... Uh, come time, you, you you pay the premium, right? So in this case, it might be 500,000, it might be a million, might be a couple million dollars of, of this uh, take home, quote unquote, money that you're putting into the uh, paying as premium. And that is 100% fully tax deductible. Okay. To, to that primary business. So simply put, if I had $2 million net, I put a million dollars in the captive, I've got a million dollars net at that point. Fully yep. deductible. Yep. And, and that's then, a big deal again, right? So we talk about, we've been talking about the risks, but you add the risks, the, you know, being able to pool and cover those risks with that huge tax deduction and it becomes mm -hmm. uh, a lot more attractive. Yep. And during the first year, that money pretty much stays inside of the captive. It's, it's the, the claim paying ability of the company at, at that point in time, which again we're, we're pooling them. And so it may not just always be your own things. You might get a notice that, Hey, such and such company over here that, that's in the pool. 
has has a claim that's being paid and and so that we're going to pull you know x amount from from your company um so that happens and then after maturing period which again is is basically a year then what what's still in the company becomes retained earnings uh is what they call it and from that point in time then you can start to use those funds to go and invest you can actually take distributions from it if you wanted you wouldn't take too much because you have to keep a certain amount of capital in in the the captive, uh, but you could start doing that. And when you do that, when you take distributions out of it, uh, then at that point they're taxed at long-term capital gain. So essentially, what you did was you took these dollars that were going to be fully uh, taxable at ordinary income rates, and you got the deduction in that year. Later, when you pull them back out, they're coming out long-term capital gains rates. That's huge, obviously, right? I mean, long-term capital gains rates are 15% and whatever your state rate is um, compared to somebody in this situation who is obviously going to be a high income earner. We talked about mm -hmm. how much the take-home has to be um, in order to make sense of doing it in the first place. Uh, and and maybe we should talk a little bit about why, Rod. One of the things that we, we should hit on is like the cost of setting up um, a captive. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, yeah. But anyway, I think that's just an important point to be thinking about. For sure. Yeah. So the captive uh, and, and it, again, it's going to depend on who you work with and, and the complexity of, of the risks that you're trying to cover and that kind of thing. But, you know, it might be 20 to $50,000 to get it set up. But again, if you can get a million dollar deduction in, in exchange, well worth it. Right. Even, even yeah. for the first year. Well, and so, we're and we're actually going to talk about how that can that can become that can become an a full tax deduction where we don't even pay the capital gains rate. But let's just say that that doesn't exist, right? I pay a million dollars into it that's been fully tax deductible. The difference between forty percent and my my likely income tax rate and fifteen is huge, right? That could mm -hmm. be just in that singular year. It could be like actually a couple hundred thousand dollars of tax savings. Um, yeah. by doing it. Cause again, we're not deferring, right? It's not, it's not like we're just putting money in there and then we're paying the entirety of it. We mm -hmm. are putting money in there and then we're paying a lesser percentage, of course, unless we can do some other creative planning to go with it. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, so a case study, let's just say we have a, a medical professional who owns their own practice, pays the regular liability and, and, you know, property and casualty type of, of coverage, um, but they have large amounts of, of, uh, net revenue consistently. And they're like, man, I've got to find a better way to, uh, to, to save more on taxes. Well, one opportunity could be to set up their own captive. Uh, if they're usually bringing home 3 million and they say, well, let's take a million of that and put it into the captive. They just had a million dollar deduction in that year. And again, it comes with expenses, both in terms of the setup costs and then and then when you participate in claims. Um, but at the end of the day, you're going to net out a lot more benefit by having done that than just paying the taxes and and moving on. Yeah. So for for some comp like some situations, like the captive is almost a no brainer, right? The larger you get, mm -hmm. the more of a no brainer it becomes because if, I, if I've got to have cash on hand anyway, mm -hmm. right. 
I might as well make it as effective as I can and change it from, from, you know, maneuver it, I should say, or convert it from um, income taxes to long-term capital gains. Uh, again, I'm going to have to have likely a large amount of money sitting on the sideline to be prepared for whatever situations come anyway. This is just mm -hmm. a way to make it a whole lot more effective. Yeah, that's a great point because because businesses keep liquid reserves around for exactly the kinds of things we're talking about, right? Right. It's almost it's almost doing exactly what you would do before, but because of this additional structure combining with other creating the captive, like that just provides additional benefits above and beyond what they would have you know needed to do anyway. Yeah. Okay, Rod. Before we finish up for today, we've got to talk about how and and there's probably multiple here, but we're going to talk about one specifically. We're going to talk about, we need to talk about how it can be combined with uh, premium finance life insurance. And really it could be combined with life insurance in any way, right? But mm -hmm. we, we've talked about how to do it in conjunction with premium finance uh, in order to take things a step further and make that tax impact even bigger. Yeah, because you, that captive insurance company is serving a purpose for a period of time. But eventually it gets to a place where it's, its usefulness is gone and you just basically convert that, what, what, what you were calling your captive and what was qualified as a captive insurance company into just a regular business, could be a C-corp that now just sits there with a bunch of capital inside of it. And okay, so then what do you do with it, right? Do you just distribute it all, pay the capital gains and, and move on? Well, you certainly could. But what you can do is you can also take that capital that's now sitting in just a regular business structure and use it to, for example, buy out a premium financed policy. Maybe it maybe it was a, a million a year policy uh, for 10 years. Now it's year 15 or something of the policy and, and uh, there's still an, an outstanding loan. Well, you basically buy out the policy, you put your whatever it is at that point in time, 10, $15 million uh, that you've been building up inside of the, of what was your captive. Now it's sitting in this regular business. Instead you buy out or you use that capital to buy out the life insurance policy. And now it's a, it's still the asset sitting in the company, but now it's a life insurance policy, which you can then loan against uh, et cetera, to get out, to get the money out income tax free. That's crazy, Rod. Like the concept is just ridiculous, right? So just by just by doing some creative planning in a situation like that, you could take that tax deduction. We used the million dollar example. Well, I may have by converting from income tax to to long term capital gains, I might have saved two hundred grand. But all of a sudden, I've taken that up a notch. It could be four hundred grand, right? Like mm -hmm, it's mm -hmm. a huge, huge difference. And um, we've done this with. Uh, some clients and, and, or at least I shouldn't say that we've done it with them. We have set things up, help them set things up in a way that this will be easy to plan for when that time comes. Uh, but it's just a really effective and kind of unique strategy that very few people are aware of. Yep, absolutely. And that's an example. There could be other opportunities to, to, you know, use that capital and, and then, but again, it's what it's doing is it's taking that, that, money that capital that's still sitting in that company and just being creative in the way that you distribute it so that you don't just have to take on the long-term capital gain yeah that's a great point 
Okay, Rod. So we've talked about a lot of technical stuff. Yep. We hit on the restricted property trust. Maybe, maybe just like your 30 second review of the restricted property trust um, and maybe where, it, like who might be a good fit for it. And then we'll do the same with captives and then we'll close things up. Yeah. So in the restric restricted property trust, uh, it's great for deductions to a business, but also for uh, be employee benefit type of stuff, retention. And it it's, you get a, a deduction now and it creates tax-free income later in a very predictable, uh, safe type of a vehicle. Yeah. I like that. It's, it's like a, it's a super, to me, for looking at it from where I'm at, it feels like a really nice way to create conservative money that's doing something for me. So if I'm putting mm -hmm. money out of, if I have to have money capital laying around, um, this could be a really great way to have it growing for me. Um, uh, just that extra money. It just seems like a really effective way, especially because it's so safe. It's so predictable. We know what we're going to get from it. Okay. Yeah. Give us a little uh, tidbit on captives and we'll close up. Yeah. So for large businesses and I mean, relatively large, right. Um, who carry uncovered risks. This is a great way to, to get those risks covered. And by the way, get a large tax deduction as you're, putting those premiums aside to do it. And at the very least, turning a ordinary income tax into long-term capital gains with the potential, uh, with, with some additional planning involved to turn it even from a ordinary to tax-free. Hmm. Well said, Rodney. Thanks for, thanks for teaching us about uh, the Restricted Property Trust and the captive. Certainly appreciate it. And is there anything we missed before we call it? That's all I had planned. Awesome. Okay. Thanks everybody for hanging out with us today. As always, if you have questions or need to get in contact with us, you can reach out to us by email, Christian at moneyinsights.net, Rod at moneyinsights.net. If you have questions or thoughts about these different strategies, then don't hesitate to reach out and we're happy to talk about it. Okay. Thanks for hanging out with us today. We'll see you next week on the Money Insights Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights Podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you in the next episode.